ब्रह्मचारोकाधिपतिहांपतिजलीतिशेशमुखिमजम ธรรมวัฏฏะสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโท
That does show the, the goodness of humanity in the human heart is basically good. And uh, I'm not making a pronouncement, I'm just re reflecting on this in terms of my own experience. Uh, living uh, in Thailand, for example, or in India, or here in the, in the UK, my main relationship to people is is basically is is a good one. Tends to bring out the the good qualities. I was in Italy last week visiting our monastery there, and uh, that's really it's very nice to go to Italy as a monk because uh, Italians somehow they they don't think they don't really think you're odd. Uh, they don't look at you in that kind of bewildered way that they do here. <laughs> uh, they kind of, they, I think they, they, they are used to, to monks and people wearing habits and things like that. So it is quite, quite, I went to a meeting at the Vatican on the 28th of October. Ajahn Chandapalo and the monks at Santa Jitaramai, our monastery in Italy, were invited to this interreligious meeting at, in St. Peter's Square with the Pope. And the Dalai Lama, all the big, the big shots were all there. And, the, and people from all different religions, from Islam and Hindu and uh, uh, Jew, Jewish uh, religion and the whole uh, and different forms of Christianity, Protestants were even invited, and uh, there, there are quite a large Buddhist delegation, including Dalai Lama and and the head monk of Mongolia, and a very interesting kind of smart-looking delegation from Japan, wearing kind of very very beautiful-looking kimonos, and another one was from Korea and. Um, and the, the Tibetan ones, and we were, and uh, there's uh, a Sri Lankan monk and some Thai monks, and then ourselves. And this was uh, the, I think, our invitation of the Pope was to, to uh, kind of at the end of this century, this millennium, to to be a force for cooperation and tolerance, a sense of. Of religions working together, uh, helping each other, trying to understand each other, uh, cooperate, and to appreciate the, the goodness of these different religions rather than, uh, say, the old, more kind of jealous, competitive, suspicious ways that we tended to, to view uh, people from different religious groups. And that was very inspiring, actually, to see thousands of people in St. Peter's Square. We were all given these little votive candles, and we had all lit up these candles as it got dark, and the, all these lights were glowing, and uh, speeches were made. The Pope himself looked very weak and very sick. Uh, I mean, he's got Parkinson's disease, and so... He's, uh, he's a very brave man because he, he looked like he, he shouldn't be there, like he should be in bed. So. <laughs> but then he went up to India the next day, uh, up to New Delhi. Uh, he's a kind of fearless 
being, but also one appreciates his efforts too at the end of this time, this particular time, to to provide a kind of uh, be a, a kind of leader in that in that uh, in that way of trying to uh, support the goodness of humanity, regardless of the particular religion that people may prefer. Then I was reading a book about the first millennium, uh, 1,000, and uh, so 1,000 years from um, 1,000 to 2,000. You know, it's amazing when you think of it in terms of 1,000 uh, years, which how different we are, because at the, in the first millennium, the, the uh, Europe was, was actually Christianized. And uh, by the first millennium, by the year 1000, most of Europe was Christian. And the Vikings, the Russians, the Magyars, the, uh, all these different kind of pagan tribes and nations had all converted to Christianity. Then there was uh, the, the center of the church, of the Christian church was in Constantinople rather than in Rome. And, uh, but then there was Rome trying to kind of proclaim its its importance also. And uh, in those days, people were quite brutal uh, to each other. You know, in the conversions, oftentimes, but the, the pagan religions were quite brutal. So it just been, must have been a, a mindset of Europeans a thousand years ago as to brutalize each other. Uh, endlessly, uh, thinking up ways of uh, of, uh, of gruesome tortures <laughs> and uh, compelling each other to to conform to various things. So when when you look at it from the historical angle, then you know, actually you know we've our, all our human rights organizations <laughs> and. Uh, you know, a thousand years is it's, you know, we couldn't possibly, you know, brutality still takes place. It's not condoned by the leaders of nations or by religions. You know, it's, it's really, it's really, uh, uh, you know, looked down on, despised and condemned to, to do brutal things. It's like what happened in East Timor, isn't it? It's a, a little tiny place and on the map that nobody ever heard of before. Most people uh, probably would have known where that is, half an island in the South Pacific. Uh, and yet the whole world was focused on what was happening on this little island, half an island. So that that also is something to to recognize the power of, of human consciousness going more towards like uh, de- democratic ideals, sense of cooperation, e- equality, uh, mutual respect. Uh, now it, it, it would be hard to sustain an, an aristocracy as such, wouldn't it? A kind of elite group and and condone that as somehow that somebody is particularly, you know, one group is is supposed to be better because they're, they belong to a certain class or 
certain uh, ethnic background or, or even a certain religion. One, one doesn't, you know, say it's not politically correct to even talk like that anymore, to, to uh, hold up one group in, as somehow better than another. So it is uh, an interesting time, and we have the the uh, the fears of the the usual fears around the uh, end of the, the apocalypse at the end of the millennium, uh, and uh, the doomsday scenarios, and the, and uh, all of the rest that seem to go with the ending or the the cessation of something. For Buddhists, of course, they're right in the middle of the of the third millennium. No, the second second millennium, in the middle of the second millennium. So yeah, it isn't quite as uh, important to us as maybe to to the rest, because this is the year twenty five forty three. Uh, so we already reached the 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 second millennium 543 years ago. <laughs> I don't know what happened then. It would be interesting to find out historically if there's any apocalyptic things going on. But Buddhism, of course, is uh, its, its emphasis is on the way things are in Dhamma, not on history or uh, it's not it's not bound up in its history or or giving significance to to time as a, as the kind of something that we must really uh, hold to because the the practice of meditation is about learning to to open your mind your heart to the present moment uh, so last night I was giving a dasana here and talking about the the, the peak moment when the Katina class was offered. And that's, that's history now, isn't it? That's a memory. <laughs> that's already over. And, and so, the, that, but there's always the now, the important, uh, uh, the, the important moment is now, rather than, say, 31st of December, 1999, or, or, uh, the, any, any views or opinions about uh, time, past, or future, but to learn to to um, develop an attentive attention, awareness, awakeness in the present, because this is the the way to be free from suffering, to get beyond the 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 endless uh, uh, problems that we create. Uh, with our minds, our imagination. The human mind, is, we, we, we've come from a society that gives a lot of importance to the future. Like the idea of progress, isn't it? It's all about things getting better and better for the future. There's always what's now. I remember back in the 50s, 1950s, we used to think, well, by 1999, everything would be much better. Because in the 1950s, we used to complain a lot about how boring it was. How boring American politics was in the 50s. 
and uh, how you know we had we didn't think where we the, what was happening now, which was then, was worth anything. That somehow the end of the the century and the millennium would somehow bring bring forth all our unfulfilled desires and wishes would be we'd have, we'd have this wonderful kind of fantasy of a future the golden age in the future now I find people reminiscing about the good old days back in the 50s when you knew things were more certain you know you knew what men were like this and women were like that and everybody knew their place and there wasn't any <laughs> grey areas or confused messages or anything it was all pretty clear uh, uh, at least that's what we might have thought it was like then then also as you get older the past become they get this kind of nostalgia I find uh, at my age, I get quite nostalgic for things of the 40s, 30s and 40s of my childhood, you know, things like that, because uh, these were the, the kind of um, conditions that, that one grew up with, that were significant as a child, the kind of precedents of one's life. And, and then as you get older, of course, uh, there's been so much change, so much, uh, uh, such a, a remarkable change, say, from the 30s to the present time, that uh, you, can't, you can't believe it. It's a completely, it seems like a completely different world. Then we have predictions about the future, with all the, the increasing amount of high-tech and, and communications and the, the, kind of the, the kind of miraculous things that science has been able to create and discover. <coughs> and so life does become very complicated and, uh, and I find modern life very complicated, in fact. Uh, you know, I'm not really interested enough in, like, computers or things like that to even... Somebody gave me a a mobile phone. I'm, I'm just not interested enough to find out how to use it, actually. So, it's a, uh, kind of like a dinosaur, something you belong to <laughs> in the museum. <laughs> old, old, an old kind of fashioned Buddhist monk. Because in, in, the, in the Buddhist monasticism, it's strange enough, based on very kind of basic things. Uh, you know, the, 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 the strange, if I tell about a Buddhism, the monastic forms, uh, which aligns itself with the old Vinaya that the Buddha established 2,543 years ago in India. And you're living by a kind of uh, tradition and by a uh, uh, principles and precepts that were formed, say, at a completely different time, different culture, different place. Uh, and when, but the aim was toward uh, simple simplicity. The whole point of the monastic, the samana life, was uh, 
was around simplicity. Um, so then, like the, the robes, like this katina ceremony, you know, now cloth is no problem. You know, there's so much material around. <laughs> and uh, it, it's not, not difficult again, but in the Buddha's time, isn't it? It must have been quite difficult. People had to, to uh, weave and had to spin their own thread and, and weave it and dye it. And, you know, cloth was, there's so many rules in our being around cloth because it was obviously something that was uh, difficult to get, not easy to come by. And so the, uh, um, at this, the, the Katina seasons where the monks had to go try to find cloth. And the Buddha did allow that bhikkhus can take cloth that is thrown out by the lay community, refuse cloth. So if nobody offers this cloth, you know, like the, the you offered this very nice material, but, and this the Buddha allowed, it's kind of, because the lay people's faith in the in the monks and the the nuns was such that they wanted to offer make an offering, otherwise they would have to go around kind of scrounging looking for bits of cloth. They would go to charnel grounds and take the cloth that were on off corpses, things like that. They're pretty gruesome now, isn't it? Kind of macabre. You can think of wearing cloth that had been on a corpse. Um, but that was quite allowed in the time of the Buddha. So the idea was to live on on kind of what was what wasn't wanted, what wasn't uh, considered valuable by the lay community, such as uh, just refuse cloth or or shelters or like the, for monks, root of a tree or. Um, Basic medicine is is based on 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 urine as a basic medicine that's allowed, and then uh, bindabat food, or food that people offer, put into your alms bowl. These four requisites that we still reflect on, even in uh, the kind of modern uh, setting that we live in. The aim of our monastic life isn't to try to get attached to high standard and high quality lifestyle, but to uh, keep reflecting on the the basic requisites, which bring us to like the 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 rules weren't established that you had to live at this low standard because, but you were. But if people offered, if the lay community offered something better, we we could accept it. But our expectations, we're not to place our expectations on on high quality, on the best, on on having the, the finest textile or the best food or the uh, the best kind of living place. Or the highest standard of, of medical treatments. So this then gives us uh, 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 we ref- we reflect on it. I mean, we because we 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 give uh, we pay attention to what we do get 
And of course, it's always much better than the than the than the than the, the no standard that is there. So this gives us this experience of katanya, katavati, or gratitude. And this is a very important uh, experience for spiritual development. It's gratitude. So that the Buddhist, the, the monastic life is based on, uh, on, you know, living in a way that inspires and creates faith in the in the lay communities around us, and, uh, and which brings out their good qualities. It's like coming here offering these requisites. It, it brings out this side of generosity and good-heartedness, uh, which are beautiful qualities in the human uh, human realm. So in this way, we. Where a monastic life is, uh, it offers this this opportunity uh, at a time where the idea is to be independent and to be kind of free and independent, not be a an alms mendicant depending on what others give you. It's kind of in 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 modern uh, values, isn't it? It's kind of despicable to be a kind of beggar with someone that, that has, you know, has to depend on, on donations from somebody else. You know, you should go out and make your mark, make your own money, uh, make your statement in the society. Uh, all this is, uh, is the kind of culture that I'm from. The kind of independent American style, you know. Don't depend on anybody, you know, just really be, uh, be completely kind of self-contained. And dependency is, is a sign of the kind of weakness. But then in, uh, when, I, when I became a monk in Thailand, it was very, uh, you know, when I, was, I, I contemplated this a lot because I wasn't, when I became monk, I wasn't all that clear about what I was really doing. Uh, I had kind of a romantic idea of being a hermit, you know, going off into a little cave somewhere and in the, deep in the jungles of Thailand and, and sitting, you know, listening to the waterfall and, and not having anything more to do with the society because I was pretty fed up with the world by the time I ordained. So, uh, I wasn't I wasn't sure of all the, the purpose, all the that under that was uh, underlying this this form. But the uh, someone in our life, the the alms mendicant, then is you know was established by the Buddha in order to to bring make this conscious and available this goodness of heart, generosity. Uh, caring about each other, uh, uh, the the good side of our humanity then is 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 uh, rather than just the, the kind of ideal side of either I'm completely independent, I don't need anybody's help, to uh, making oneself uh, uh, worthy of alms is a different different thing altogether, isn't it? To, to to be to live in a way that you're actually worthy of this, rather than 
you know, expecting or demanding it. So it brings out the goodness in ourselves, the, the, the monks and nuns here, they humbles us and it brings out our sense of gratitude, appreciation and, and uh, respect for the, the lay communities that we live with. So this is a day to contemplate the, go the goodness of our humanity because there's so much attention given to the badness. And you know, the news is usually about how horrible people have been to each other. And, and because that we, we, can, we, we tend to give great importance to that, to, to the, who's a criminal and, who, and who's corrupt and who uh, does... Uh, terrible things, or cheats, or lies, or uh, is adulterous, or whatever, and we, we make these the kind of headlines of our lives. Or even we do it to ourselves, oftentimes we make our faults into something really big, and, and emphasize uh, our weaknesses and faults, uh, and we can be quite dismissive of our own goodness, our own good-heartedness, because we we, we have a sense of that being honest is to admit faults. Well, it's not anything wrong with admitting one's faults, but it's, it's putting them in, in, exaggerating them. Making them, so that, that's all we ever see ourselves with, it's to what, what is wrong, our weakness, the, the things we haven't done very well, or the mistakes we've made in the past. Uh, to where then we, we're constantly suffering from guilt and sense of lack of self-esteem and these kind of attitudes are so common now in these uh, affluent Western society. People that don't respect themselves, they, uh, you know, they suffer a lot from depression, sense of failure, of not being worthy of of uh, being weak and not being lovable and all this are quite common now to be, to, to see oneself through these kind of perceptions. So why do we do this? Because maybe we, do, we don't, we don't have enough katina ceremonies or <laughs> opportunities to, to, to contemplate our own good. It's not to inflate one's ego, you know, it's not, not a, a kind of pat, pat oneself on the back and, and kind of, uh, you know, brag about one's goodness. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like putting it in perspective. Putting our lives in perspective. So, when I, when I first, um, when I, went to Rajan Chah is emphasizing this, this uh, uh, you know, reflecting on your own goodness. And this was quite a, quite a new, new insight for me. Never really thought of doing that. <laughs> because he was brought up to think, you, you, you know, real honesty was admitting, you know, how horrible you are. <laughs> and, uh, and to, to, to a fear of, of inflating oneself, fear of of look of like boasting or or overestimating oneself. 
But this isn't what Numpacha uh, was encouraging, it wasn't that, it wasn't uh, inflating the ego, but recognizing. And so I contemplate, what, why, why did I become a monk? And then of course the old cynic would say, oh you became a monk because, then I put it into some maybe lower level of kind of selfish involvement or whatever. Or I could put it into uh, a spiritual aspiration. That a spiritual aspiration is something I respect. And I think I become a monk because I, I was fed up with the world and couldn't face life and had to kind of run away from the world and and uh, go off in a kind of remote part of Thailand and hide. Was that it? And no, that really wasn't it. And yet sometimes those, those kind of thoughts did occur. I mean, it wasn't like that was totally out of line, totally untrue. But when I put it into what, what I really became a monk was to realize the truth, to be free from delusion. Well, that's very good. You know, I can respect myself for that. It's bringing in, making contests, you know, bringing into your consciousness again what what is good, your own goodness, and like like uh, coming to um, live in in England. And why did I why did I come to England? <laughs> uh, I was quite happy in Thailand. And then, uh, and, and th- sometime this morning, I was feeling pretty grumpy this morning, thinking, why did I ever come to England? <laughs> I why didn't I just become a hermit, you know, and not get involved with all the complications of community life? And so then, uh, this kind of thought still can arise. But then, you know, also, when, when you've been brought up, when you've lived your life as an alms mendicant, and you've been given so much uh, by the lay people, by the monks in Thailand, and you've been given, you know, encouraged in every way, given the teaching, given the requisites, uh, given the support, given everything for so many years, you just can't, you can't just think of yourself anymore, you know, you think you've got also have to, there's something that wants to, to, uh, to give, you know, to share what you've learned with others and not just retreat to a safe place and just to, to avoid uh, conflict and complicated and, and uh, uh, unpleasant situations. So that uh, that also was very uh, something I can respect in terms of uh, the the aspiration, the, the willingness to share my life with others and what I've learned and so forth, and uh, try to give people opportunity from say like here to to uh, become a, a monk or a nun or to practice or this retreat center opening uh, 
opportunities for people to go on meditation retreats and so forth. When we think of the next millennium, next thousand years, um, we can, you know, we can, we have, think of, say, the world's population is rather daunting, isn't it? Six billion of us. Uh, and we don't get along very well. <laughs> <Do> we? <laughs> and, uh, and we're, uh, you know, you can see the problems, the endless problems of, of, of genocide now, or, or retribution, or just to two ethnic groups totally unwilling to accept each other or help each other or just holding, going on to all the resentments of the past. That's another thing about the human mind. I, we, I can get, I can just think of the things I didn't like, the unfairnesses, the unjust things that have happened to me in my past. I can still feel angry and resentful right now, just by bringing it all up in my mind. Or if I'm particularly identified with a particular group or ethnic background or whatever, then when that group is threatened, then it brings out my sense of protectiveness and wanting to, to uh, protect or destroy the, 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 the enemy, those kind of emotions part of our human state. So we can be kind of wound up in various ways through demagoguery and we can be quite exploited by clever people because we, we, we have our blind spots where we can get very angry and vicious and nasty remembering injustices done to our ancestors a thousand years ago. <laughs> I think of, I mean, being a, being a, a, a American from a, from a pioneer kind of background. My ancestors went over and kind of took over the North American continent. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, so we, you know, this kind of, uh, pushed the Indians off from the land and took it over. There's a lot that American Indians could resent <laughs> about, about things like that if you bring it up into your mind, into your consciousness of uh, how unfair it was and how arrogant and how unjust. But then that's, um, you know, then we're just helpless victims of of, of, say, the past, of our memories, of our emotional habits, fears about the future, and we're just lost, kind of lost beings in a world that we don't understand, and, and uh, that is increasingly more complicated and crowded. And in the future, the thing about sharing and, and how to distribute wealth and how to look after and how to control things. And it's quite daunting because uh, we 
we we do we still think you know we we people in countries like this in affluent countries we we can just take for granted uh, the kind of privileges that we have and uh, not not feel anything about the the poverty in the third world so we might have kind of high-minded sentiments about it, you know, about it shouldn't, it's not fair, it shouldn't be there, but are we willing to give up anything for it? <laughs> uh, and uh, would we give up our privileges? These kind of questions arise. And so, the, the way human consciousness is now, with its emphasis on on gain and attainment and and uh, and the material uh, encourages us to endlessly think we need more and more things to improve our lives. That kind of thinking then is no longer something that we really should uh, encourage. And so it's interesting to see the, uh, the amount of interest in meditation here in the UK over the past 20 years. Uh, people begin to waking up to the futility of just endlessly thinking of trying to raise the standard of living, get more and more rights, privileges, material comforts. Because you, you know, we know that it really, it, if the mind is clear, the mind is pure, then it really doesn't matter. We can, we can be quite happy with with our ultimate happiness is with the purity of our being, not with how much we have externally. So this is another thing uh, you learn in monastic life, how, uh, how you, you don't need much. And, uh, you, you know, the, the, the joy of the life is, is, uh, is, uh, is in the mind itself, not in the external environment. The external environment is can can give a, can be quite pleasant, like our monasteries are in quite nice places, and, and uh, the the things that we have are quite good and and so forth. But but our emphasis, what we reflect on, isn't on clinging to these kind of things, but on uh, on developing, on cultivating, on on uh, trusting in this purity of our being in the present moment. So today it is just uh, to to regard this day as a as a as a day of joyousness, generosity, goodness. Everything that here was. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, it was something that was encouraging you toward uh, a, a happiness and a sense of, of joy in, in being who you are and, and having uh, opportunities like this. So, like Amravati now is, is very well set up. And so, and so July the 4th, uh, after the, the grand opening, there's such a kind of relief, you know, where suddenly oh, my life 
as a monk has been really in, in starting and building monasteries. Even when I went to stay with Ajahn Chah in Thailand, he was building his monastery. I helped to build Wapapong. <laughs> and then I helped start another monastery in Amatulur, another place. And then I helped start a monastery for foreigners called Wapamanacha. And then came to England, started another monastery, Chitthurst, then Amavati, and then they spread out. And always uh, kind of in the product. Well, this is just, I'm a kind of Johnny Appleseed type, you know, it's kind of spreading seeds around the world. <laughs> Why ever see anything grow? <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of the material side, at least, uh, the, uh, the, um, one, one feels that Amavati is now a very kind of lovely place, uh, where the, the kind of material side is no longer something that that one has to give that much attention to. And so in a way it is kind of completed or finished. And that is what it what very much meant to me on July the fourth, my grand opening. And then uh, but then a place like this you've got you've got all the You've got everything kind of going for it. So now it's really up to us living here, isn't it? Uh, to develop, not, not to keep looking outward and seeing how we can make it better and better, but to uh, develop much more attention, much more inward, and, and uh, learning to uh, understand the way things are as we're experiencing it. To be able to really know for yourself the old condition phenomena is impermanent. And not just know that as some kind of Buddhist teaching, but actually know it from a, from a deeper level of knowing than just holding to Buddhist ideas. And developing the, the life of a samana, not as some kind of in some kind of personal, uh, intimate, personal way, but just realizing how how simple life really is in a very in an age which is very complicated, where you have uh, so many complications, so many distractions, and yet the the teaching of the Buddha is ultimate simplicity, not complicated at all. And so you, you begin to, but that, that is probably the most difficult for us. It's very, people are, you know, standing in queues to get computers and become computer programmers and to work for Microsoft or whatever and become the richest man in the world like Bill Gates. And he's from where I'm from. <laughs> Richest man in the world from Seattle. I never saw it in a day. And when I was a child, I used to be desperate to find out somebody famous who was from Seattle. 
he liked nobody that amount to anybody ever came from Seattle. You know? <laughs> but now the richer they say the richest man in the world. It doesn't really mean anything. I don't know. He doesn't sound like particularly joyful and happy being, uh, being having such, having uh, having so much, because the real joy isn't in in that, but in in a, in a deeper level, a very simple level of awareness and attention to life that is available to all of us. It's not not something for just a very gifted, special unusual types. So Buddhism of course is a is not a religion that that uh, cancels out anything. And so like at the Vatican they you know, you can see Christians worry a lot about other religions because their basic approach is conversion, trying to to get people to become Christians is their kind of message, and and, we, and so they assume from that premise that all other religions operate in the same way. But uh, but Buddhism is not not doesn't isn't it doesn't have that in mind. It's, it's the whole aim of the Buddha was not to convert people into Buddhists, but to awaken them. So. It's a it's a teaching of awakeness. It says, "Wake up!" So, and <laughs> say you have to become a Buddhist, or you know, believe in any certain thing. This is it's a it's a teaching that awaken. The whole point is awakeness. So even the word Buddha is, is like the awakened one. It's an epithet, isn't it? It's a, means the the one who knows, the one that's awake. And so that is is when people ask us, do you believe in God? And and, uh, and this is a problem when you're having interreligious uh, conferences because most religions make a statement about uh, the ultimate in terms of a, a theology or a theism. And Buddhists don't. And so that, that becomes very problematical for people because they, they, for most people religion is around making a kind of a theistic statement. And, uh, but the, the, with the, particularly the Theravada school, with what I know the best, is, its, its purpose is awaken, awakening. And then the then the understanding of things comes through a direct knowing rather than through a, a kind of a, a dogmatic formulas that are given to you. As you wake up, as you uh, open to life, wake up and look and observe, you begin, you, then you begin to realize the truth. You know it for yourself. It's not, not a Buddhist telling you what is the Buddhist truth and Buddhists believe this and Buddhists don't believe that and all that kind of thing. But it's a direct knowledge, awakening. And this of course is the the kind of fulfillment of our human in terms of this is my reflection. It's a it's a fulfillment. 
because uh, well, if you're willing to do this, then your life as a human being has been has reached its its perfection because uh, that seems to be its ultimate purpose is is to encourage awakened awareness attention to life in the present so I offer this as a reflection for you this afternoon and uh, also wish you all the best for the next century, next millennium and we're having a peace vigil here, and you'll see the posters around uh, all starting on the 28th of December uh, through to the 3rd of January so we'll have uh, uh, what we do is we always have group people meditating in this temple 24 hours a day over that period all meditating and developing peacefulness and mean developing peacefulness in here, not just go around may everything be peaceful while you're all stirred up and angry in here <laughs> but to uh, but to really uh, uh, be peaceful yourself and then that that tends to make it possible for all of us you know. I always feel that my peacefulness is, uh, you know, that's the best thing I can offer you, isn't it? The, if I'm peaceful, if I'm just telling you to be peaceful, and I'm all wired up, it's not, it's, you know, it might be inspiring, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really mean very much, you know. So. I do try my best. <laughs> so people are also invited to, to participate in that. And then we have some calendars for the new year and, and so we can pass those out. As mentioned by Luang Po, you, he will now be he will be uh, handing out calendars um, for those who'd like to receive one. If I could have everyone's attention just for a moment. <clears throat> um, I just wanted to clarify on this invitation for the New Year's <laughs> vigil. 
which Lumpur was just speaking okay. about. People are welcome to come, and we will. We have still some floor space if people want to spend the the whole week with us. Um, they need to be able to come for the whole seven days and book in advance, and write either to the monk nun or monk guest monk or the guest nun uh, for accommodation. But at the moment, all of the beds have been taken. So if you would like to come for the full seven days, please book in advance. Otherwise, people are welcome to come for the day. But we won't be able to accommodate people for shorter times. And what's important is to make sure that you book in advance because we're not going to be able to just accommodate people as they come. That's one announcement. And the other announcement is, is just to let you know that on December 12th we'll have a nun's ordination. There's three fine women uh, anagarikas who will be going forth taking the uh, papaja, uh, the, the ordination for the nuns. And um, if anyone here would like to attend that, you're very welcome. And if anyone here is, is interested or would find joy in, in offering requisites for nuns, then you're welcome to contact me. This is Sister Tanasanti speaking. So you can either speak to me now or just leave me a note in the office. And thank you.